Hey, we're in chapter 2, page 25, and once again, the topic is Tom. Right on, Bible interpretation. Give it up for Tom. Trying to act so modest there. That's right, interpretation. Okay, if I can interpret that. How many guys are still praying to interpret my writing? I know you're out there. The gift of uh, interpretation uh, maybe might still be valid for today. But uh, page 25, if you got your uh, workbooks there, Bible interpretation. What's the whole theme? The whole theme we saw, it's like a detective show. How many guys like detective shows? All four of you. But anyway, that's right. It's CSI Bible style. That's what we got to do. Not be willy-nilly about picking up this book and not just, you know, take it uh, here, there and casual about it. No, you got to get in here. You got to dig it out. You got to pay attention to the clues and the facts and let the facts uh, speak for themselves. The spirit of dragnet is all over you. Just the facts. You got to deal with just the facts. Let the scripture speak to you is what we've been seeing. And we saw that uh, we want to know the truth. Why? Because if you get that wrong, then you're going to begin to uh, believe and maybe even unfortunately propagate false teaching. Okay. And that makes you a false teacher. As we'll see on uh, Sunday, Lord willing, false prophets and things that come in the church and it's mind-blowing how that continues to happen. Well, if you don't know the Bible and if you don't do what the Bible says to do when these guys come along, you're supposed to kick them out of the church. Okay, but people don't do that and so the lies continue to go on. Uh, You'll go into apostasy, you'll go into sin and I don't know about that, but that's just three things. How many guys would say it's really important then to rightly interpret the Bible? Okay, that's what we saw. Now we got into, let's review at the top of page 27, the interpretive process. Okay, there's some steps you need to consider as you approach the Bible. Okay, believe it or not, contrary to popular opinion, the best way to study the Bible probably isn't go, and put your finger down and grab one. Hey, God could use that. I'm not saying he can't, but that's probably not the best way. Uh, if you're going to become a student of his work, you need to read repeatedly. You need to ask. We saw preliminary questions. You need to outline, check out the paragraphs and what's going on with the main theme. And we left off, believe it or not, on the bottom of page 27. What do we do with the evidence? Well, thanks for asking, Holly. It works well with our notes tonight. Let us return to our analogy of the crime scene investigation. The crime scene investigator carefully gathers evidence from the scene, trying to leave it just the state they find it, Right? How many guys have heard about the actual crime scenes that people aren't careful about that and they kick things over and they, they get it wrong or they, they, they uh, mess up the evidence or they uh, interpret the evidence wrong or they assume that this is what it is and that's not the facts, right? It's the same thing when it comes to the Bible, okay? That's what I like what he says, in the state he finds it. That means, listen, when you approach the scripture, just read it in the context. We're gonna see again tonight the importance of that and some good old-fashioned common sense, okay? But don't mess with it. Okay, leave it in the state that it is. Whether you like it, lump it, leave it or not. Because sometimes, as we saw before, you're going to come across something that what? <clears throat> Convicts you. Remember as we saw, the Bible says, the scripture that, hey, listen, it's not just there for uh, teaching and training in righteousness. What's the other two things the word of God is useful for, the Bible says? Correcting and rebuking. That's always fun, isn't it? Okay, well, it's going to happen. And we have a choice when we get corrected and rebuked. I, have you ever been taught something wrong and you had to admit that, with all due respect to your Sunday school teacher or pastor at that time or whatever, um, I was taught wrong, right? Or, or, you know, and things of that nature. And so you need to don't mess with it. Don't tweak it. Don't tamper it. Just deal with the facts. Dragnet uh, is your methodology. We have hopefully done the same in the observation process that we've seen thus far. Now, now that we got this evidence, what do we do with it? We put it in our back pocket. We go down to LA. We get in line uh, early in the morning, Orson, And we see if we can be one of those lucky contestants on Jeopardy and get that daily double in that Bible column. Because now that we've studied everything in the Bible, we can get all those amazing questions answered, like Moses' dog's favorite brand of ice cream. 
It was not chocolate chip. I know that's what you're thinking. I'm thinking they didn't have ice cream in the desert without refrigeration, but that's my theory. And, uh, but no, that's not what you do. You don't sit on it. You don't just, it's not popcorn knowledge. That's why me personally, we've talked about this before. I'm not really big on like Bible trivia games, Bibleopoly. I'm, a, I'm not against that, you know, whatever. But to me, it just almost leaves this, um, this wrong mindset when it comes to growing in our knowledge of the Bible. The whole point in studying the scripture, if we can ever get that far, <laughs> is what's called application, okay? Not just put it in your head, you need to apply it. God wants you to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He tells us in the word how that's done. He doesn't want you to just sit on or amaze your friends with all these incredible facts that you can spot off, okay? Actually, we do much the same thing that the crime scene investigator does with his evidence. We go into the lab. That's right. Top of page 28, we're cruising now. We must now analyze, that's your first blank there, analyze, the evidence to come to some conclusion, okay? Remember, interpretation asks the question, what does it mean? Okay, not to you. What does the text mean? Because who's the one who created the universe? God's the correct answer. That's always a safe answer, typically in Christian circles when you ask a question. Uh, And uh, who's the one who wrote and inspired the Bible? God. Who's the one who created us? Who's the one that made us male and female and launched family, government, everything we have today? God. So who do you think probably makes up the rules? God. Okay, so that's what it is. It's what he means, what he says, he knows what's right and what's best for us. Interpretation is the process of discovering the meaning intended by the author for his original, that's your next blank, original audience and the significance of that meaning to them. Why? Because that's proper Bible interpretations. We saw before in the analogy uh, on the very first page, we saw that, uh, let's say John once again uh, he was 2,000 years ago, was, wrote a letter, and he was all excited about getting his new man truck. And he actually wrote man truck, right? 2,000 years later, somebody finds it, uh, and they don't know from what, you know, man truck what it is, and, and they twist it out of context, and they say, well, man truck obviously means that that was the vehicle of which humanity progressed through the generations. There's four tires on a truck, so man truck uh, means the four different periods of mankind succeeding... To, yeah, <laughs> but that's what people do with the Bible, right? And that's why he says when you interpret it, you've got to get back what did it mean that before you can even apply it, you've got to get it right. But before you can get it right, you have to go back, do your homework, which might involve getting involved, as we saw on Sunday, the customs and mannerisms of the Jewish people because we're 2,000 years removed. We're in a Western mindset, not an Eastern mindset, so you might miss some things and or misinterpret. You don't want to come out thinking that the man truck represented humanity. No, it was a truck, okay? But it did bring inspiration because it is now the name of the bowling team who's in first place. Man truckers, come from behind. Yeah, whatever, we'll talk about pride in the next page. But anyway, that's right. Uh, Let's continue on. Uh, Anyway, so it says this, consequently, an accurate interpreter tries to recreate the meaning of the message as if he himself were the writer so that he's going to understand the passage's significance. Why? So again, you can amaze your friends? No, because you want to get it right because you want to apply it. If you get it wrong, you're going to apply something, but you don't want to apply error because then we're right back to the importance of biblical interpretation. You're going to start following a lie. You're going to start teaching a lie. You're going to become a propagator of a lie. You're going to become a false teacher, okay? And give birth to apostasy and sin. Now, this whole process, accurate interpretation, 
It depends on two things. One, your ability to ask interpretive questions about the text. And number two, this is a big one, is your ability to research the answers that you come across to these questions. Because how many guys have ever been reading the Bible? All 14 of you. Praise God, that's a better hand raise. Okay, and you actually came across something that I just don't get that one. So what you do is you just skip it. Move on. Now, that's what we do if we're doing what we shouldn't do when we study the Bible. We're in that marathon race. Remember that? I got to beat John. He's got 15 chapters he read today. I'm going to beat him 17. I didn't learn one thing, but I'm beating him. I ain't got time to stop and ask questions. I can't read. What? No. You need to research, and we're going to deal with that a little bit. Now, interpretation involves the following important elements. Number one, defining. Is your next blank there? Man, we're cruising now, Tom. Defining important terms. What does the writer, underline that, writer, what does the writer mean by this term? Not what you think it means, not what you hope it means, not what you want it to mean after it rebuked you and you didn't like it and didn't want to submit to it. What does the writer mean? Okay, you need to define the important terms. Now, one of the basic presuppositions in interpreting the Bible correctly is that each biblical writing, that is each word, each sentence, each book, was recorded in a, listen, written language to follow normal. And this is huge. Because people, again, they, they spiritualize the Bible and act like it's some weird, weird thing that only people with 9,000 degrees or have been in their prayer closet for 400 years and come out with one squinty eye. And they're super spiritual. And only they can interpret it for you. No, God wants us to know his word. He wrote it in normal grammatical language, okay? But as we talked before, Paul used sarcasm. And Lord willing, with our study in, uh, on Sunday about did the Bible really come from God, we're going to see that he used normal guys and the Holy Spirit was upon He used their personalities. And Mark wrote different than John, who wrote different than Luke, and who wrote different than Peter, but that's okay. But God used them as his instruments. Now, they followed normal grammatical meanings, including figurative language. Now, I remember in, in uh, seminary, Dr. Couch would always talk about, as we go through <laughs> repeatedly, uh, Bible interpretation, hermeneutics, how to properly approach the Bible, etc., on and on and on again. And those were always the first classes you always took, because wh- wh- why go any further unless you know how to interpret the Scripture correctly, right? You've you got to get the foundation right. And he would always talk about, yes, you need to define important terms, yes, you need to pay attention to figure language, but I'm telling you, 90% of it, believe it or not, folks, is good old-fashioned common sense okay when you approach the bible again we've got this thing that it's going to be hard to understand we've got this thing built up upon us that people think well it's only the spiritual only the pastor can figure this out you know no did did god say that i inspired my word and it's useful for teaching correcting rebuking and training righteousness and only your spiritual leader can tell you how to apply no, as we saw before, this is what the Roman Catholic Church did. And this is why they're thumbing their nose at you and I. And they would call us Protestants. They would say that we are, it's, called, it's the Protestant experiment. And they're just waiting for you and I to go right back into Catholicism, back into the Dark Ages. And believe it or not, it's actually happening with the ecumenical movement. And Lord willing, we'll get to that uh, with our one world religion in the next final countdown say. But anyway, so you need some good old-fashioned common sense. The Roman Catholic Church we saw back in 1229 AD, they actually deliberately kept the Bible, even though the language was switched into English, they deliberately kept it in Latin. So even if you could get a copy of the Bible, which was extremely rare, you couldn't even read it because you didn't know the language. And yet we see people today have this mindset that I, I, I can't get into it myself. But again, why would God write this for his children if his children could not really understand this? He wants us to. 
If anybody wants us to know and become disciples, Jesus said before he left, Matthew 20, go into all the world and make disciples. That's our context of our studies. And we're now in the second workbook. Disciples, methetes, disciplined learners. It's for every Christian. But again, we have to dispel this myth that it's only the super spiritual or it's going to be too hard. What's the use? And we shoot ourselves in the foot before we even get started. Okay, but then when we get started, we have to pay attention with some good old common sense uh, 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 facts as we take a look. Now, let me give you an example that the Bible uses normal grammatical language, right? We use it all the time. And we don't say, well, I'll never understand what Pastor Billy's talking about there. Apparently, that's only for the super spiritual to understand. I just can never figure it out. Now, there might be an element of truth to that, but let me finish the analogy. Uh, if I were to say to you, man, I am so hungry, I could eat a horse. Every one of you will walk out of here going one of two things. Um, I just, Pastor Billy just speaks in such foreign language. I'll, I'll never be able to understand him. I've got to go find another church. It's just so difficult to understand the way he speaks. And, and, or you'll say, Pastor Billy's really eating horse? We, we better take up a collection or something. Just, whatever. Or maybe he knows something we don't. Maybe that's a new form of health food or something. Or what. Now, would any of you, please say no, actually walk out of there with any one of those three interpretations if I said that. No, what would you automatically, without even thinking about it, how do you interpret that? I'm very hungry. I'm not just hungry, I'm very hungry, right? No, listen, believe it or not, the Bible uses the same language. And yet people go, oh, it's all weird, it's all... No, it's not. I'll give you an example uh, in, in another sense, okay? Uh, in fact, let's turn to it. I'm going to give you one example. Matthew chapter 5. This is common sense, okay? This is, this is a defining the terms, figurative language, Common sense. It's really not that hard to figure out. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, of course, speaking. And this is the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And it gets to the point in verse 29. And uh, Matthew 5, 29. And as soon as you get there, if you get there, say, chickens are evil. <laughs> Praise God, all one of you. All right, and rebellion's coming later, so we're going to deal with that. Uh, but anyway, that's right. I right, stalled enough time. I think you're there. Let's go ahead. Let's read uh, Matthew 5, 29. Jesus speaking. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, what do you do? Gouge it out and throw it away. Ah! Now, if we were to take that absolutely literally, because it says it's there in the Bible, how many guys realize that after two days of being a Christian, you would be blind? Okay, obviously he's using figurative language, all right? He says it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, if your right hand caused you to sin, what do you do? Cut that baby off and throw it away. Now, how do you, mean, you guys realize that four days after you became a Christian, you would have no sight and you, no hands? But did you know that there's actually people today that take this literally and they do chop off the hands of thieves, the Muslim community? Did you know that? It's like, what? This is just, it's, it's called figure, it's called hyperbole is the word. An exaggeration to emphasize a, a, a sentence, a statement. That's all it is. It's common sense language. Just like if I were to say, man, I'm so hungry, I can eat a horse. That's all he's saying. He's trying to get your attention. This is serious stuff. What Jesus is talking about in this deal is the issue of sin. And he's saying that sin requires radical surgery. Don't goof around. Don't play with that thing. Don't flirt with it. The Bible says flee from it. If you got sin and it's there, get rid of it immediately. That's what he's saying. Okay? It's not literally do that. Okay? Let me give you another example. Okay? If I were to say, man, I'm so hungry, I could eat a piece of chicken. I almost have to wipe my tongue for that. 
right? It'll never happen, could be an interpretation. Uh, Pastor Billy uh, got in a wreck on his way here. He, got, he bumped his head. Uh, he's malnourished. Uh, the horse meat he's been eating is messing with his brain. It's leeching into it. Obviously, he can't think straight. I mean, wh- no, that would mean I'm really, really, really hungry and, and apparently on my deathbed. Starving to death, literally, okay. But even then, I won't compromise. T- no, <laughs> I'll die for it. No. Right? It's the same thing when we approach the Bible. I'm, and I, I, it's kind of a humorous example, but I wanted to give you at least one example. That's not the only one. You're going to see that throughout the scripture. But it's, oh no, did he really... I really think we complicate it way more than it needs to be. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but I'm really thinking, come on, guys, if we would just, we, we don't freak out every time we use hyperbole amongst us, why do we get all whacked out as Christians when we see it in the text, okay? It's common sense, common sense. That's what he's talking about. Therefore, we should be able to clearly understand the meaning of each word by understanding how the word was used in the first century and then examining the context to see which meaning fits best uh, if the word has multiple meanings. Now, we've talked about this before. That's very important in the scripture too. Okay. We, we've used the example of cool, right? And uh, I'll give you a couple examples on this one. Cool, you could say, hey, man, outside is kind of cool. Or you could say, hey, Mike, this shirt's looking pretty. Cool. Or hey, Orson, you haven't said a word to me tonight. Your attitude towards me kind of cool. Did you eat chicken or something? You know, it's like, well, okay, now that's the exact same word. Spell the exact same way. What determined its meaning? Context that it's used in, okay? It's the same thing when you come across in the scripture. Let me give you another example. Uh, Ruth, you should appreciate this one. How about uh, bored, okay? It's the exact same word, spelled the same way. You could say, well, that's speaking of a piece of wood. Or you could say, man, I tell you what, sort of spelled a little different there. Uh, you could say uh, uh, boredom. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm bored. Okay, or you could say that uh, it's that little exciting meeting you're going to attend to board, right? And so is this some super spiritual thing that only Jim Jubinville can figure out? No, it's common sense interpretation that we see. Now, we talked about this before. This is the importance when you come across this word, saint, in the scripture. First of all, who's a saint? It's only those people that the Roman Catholic Church over 100 years, they have to wait a period, uh, and uh, that they deem is going to be uh, called a saint. Because, and then they got these things they got to go through. They got to prove that they were able to do miracles and they lived a good life, etc. Blah, 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 blah. No. First of all, the word is saint is hagios in the Greek. Isn't that a good name? Isn't that a man term? Hagios. Oh, no. I like it. Anyway, what it means is holy one. Okay? Turn to somebody and say, you're a holy one. Now, this, this will encourage you big time. Did you know that God does not see us as we see ourselves. Because of the imputed righteousness, we talked about this in our last workbook, of Jesus Christ, God sees us as a hagias, a holy one, as if we've never sinned. That's why right now, not just when we get to heaven, right now we can have an intimate, beautiful, personal, one-on-one relationship and communication and be indwelt with the Holy Spirit who is God as his temple right now. Because we've been justified. As if we've never sinned. We're a hog house. We're a saint. Every Christian is a saint. Okay? Now, that's the, the, the meaning of the term. Okay? But the, the, who, who that's applying to determines on the context. Okay? The Bible talks about Old Testament saints. The Bible talks about New Testament saints. The Bible talks about tribulation saints. Those who get saved in the seven-year tribulation. And see, that's a major thing to understand because people want to keep cramming in the church and squishing them in the tribulation 
when according to Daniel, uh, his 70th week prophecy, the church wasn't even in existence and who he was dealing with back in the book of Daniel where we get the seven-year tribulation, the final week of the 70th prophecy, 69 have passed, one more to go. That's the whole context. It dealt with two things. The Jewish people, that God was gonna raise up his remnant. He's not done with them. And he was also gonna pour out his wrath on the Gentile nations. The church wasn't even in existence for 500 years. Okay, but people say, well, it's the word saint, so that's gotta be referring to Christians. Not necessarily. Then the Bible also talks about the millennial saints. Okay, those who are going to uh, rule and reign with Jesus during the millennial kingdom. Okay, and then of course it's going to end in what's called the eternal state. So just because it says saint, number one, you need to understand the context. Or you need to understand the meaning of who it's uh, applying to. It's not a Roman Catholic thing. Uh, it's a biblical thing if you do it correctly. But it's also who is it talking to. But that all comes from biblical interpretation. Now, you get any one of these things wrong, and guess what? You get steered off. We've used this analogy before. I remember Dr. Couch talking about this. He was a, pl- a pilot. And he'd say, you know, he'd take off from uh, Fort Worth, uh, Texas, in his plane. And let's say he went somewhere up north, like, say, to Denver or whatever. Okay? And he says he would uh, take off in his plane. And it's quite a big distance. I don't know how many hundreds, hundreds of miles, whatever. And he says, now the problem is, he says, if you got your trajectory wrong, maybe it's just a little teeny tiny bit. He said, maybe even just, just 1%. You're thinking, well, so what? So you... So you you're just 1% off. He said, you extrapolate that over time and miles, you'll never even come close to your destination. And it's the same thing, the importance of studying the Bible. Okay, you might think, well, that's just, okay, so I'm not quite right on this whole context of the same thing. <sighs> you're gonna be off sooner or later. And then if that becomes your biblical means of interpretation, if that's your habit, and if you're gonna be that loose with the scripture, you think that's the only one you're gonna go, it's gonna start to add up and you're gonna be way off the target, okay? And you don't wanna do that, why? Because it gives birth to sin and apostasy and false teaching, false teachers. And the whole time God wants us to know his truth. You have to get in here CSI style, pay attention to it, okay? It's not hard, but with some good old fashioned common sense, I think it's gonna keep us uh, on track. There are several helpful resources that will aid us in this task. Probably one of the most useful that every Bible student should have on the shelf is a Vines Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words. How many guys said that today 15 times? We'll talk about lying later, Mike. But uh, that's right. Uh, no, that's a great resource. I love it. I got one in my office and uh, published by Thomas Nelson Publishers, for those of you wondering. Uh, and uh, this is a great thing. Let me, let me break it. Well, let me read that and I'll break it down for you. Okay. This excellent resource allows you to look up the word in English. It gives you the Greek or the Hebrew word corresponding to the English word as well as the different ways it's used in the Bible as a whole, you know, in the context, okay? Another helpful resource is Strong's Concordance. Some of you guys are probably more familiar with that one, okay? And uh, it's in the NIV or the KJV versions. I got them out there. The concordance will show you all the times that the word is used in the Bible, and the number to, write, uh, to the right of your word will correspond to a Hebrew or Greek word in the back, which contains a Hebrew or Greek dictionary, okay, is what it's talking about. Now, if you wanted to do like a neat word study, Okay, there's a couple resources out there. There's the uh, Tories uh, Topical Bible uh, Handbook is another one. Uh, is, and, uh, and basically what, what you have with, with that is uh, you basically, every occurrence, he's basically did the homework for you. Most of it's all now computerized. You don't even have to use that. It's, it's pretty much free wherever you can go, believe it or not. So that's what I said before. So we should be the most biblically literate generation of Christians ever. We have so many things that are fingertips for free that the church in all church history never had i mean they, they many christians never even could even get a hold of a bible and even if they did they had to work through these kind of games where if you could even come across one and this was only for royalty believe you me 
This is pre-Gutenberg press, man. You don't just whoop these babies out. Then you couldn't even read them because they played this little game with you and put it in an archaic language, okay? And, uh, but anyway, so, but uh, uh, you'll do a topical study uh, is, is what it is. And so basically, let's say you wanted to do a study on anger. So basically, it goes out and already does the whole thing for you. Uh, look up every, every single occurrence of anger uh, in the scripture. Why, why do you think that would be important? Because I have nothing else to do. Pastor Billy, Saturday at 2 p.m. because the game's already over and I already raked the leaves and the dogs are outside. Yeah, that, hey, praise God. I got to stop that voice. Uh, thank you. But uh, <laughs> for saving me. Uh, no, because that's what you want, right? I, have you ever done that? I have, hey, we did a study called How to Have Joy in Hard Times. You guys remember that? How many guys memorized all six of those sermons? How many guys had no clue how many sermons there was in that? Be honest with you. Okay, well, now you're out there. Okay, but uh, hey, I wonder what I did for preparation for that study on joy. Hmm, inquiry minds want to know. Hey, that's right. I looked up every single occurrence in the scripture, printed it out, took it home, highlighted that baby, scribbled on, made my own little notes, every single one. And then I did the antithesis of joy. I did just because I want to see the opposite, right? I don't want to just see the positive. I want to see, unfortunately, why the negative. And so I looked up every occurrence of the word worry, every occurrence of the word anxiety. And you know one of the interesting things that I found using a Vines expository dictionary of the Bible uh, is we saw, this is where I've said this many times. I want to take you there tonight, though. Merimana'o. I came across this word, merimana'o. Open your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew was written by... Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, and uh, this is the classic passage here uh, from Jesus about do not worry, right? How many guys would say that worry kind of messes up your joy? Yeah, just a little, okay? It's the antithesis of that, okay? Worry, let's take a what Jesus said, Matthew uh, 6, 25, he says, therefore, Jesus speaking, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Did you know we have divine permission from God to not have to worry? And yet, what do we do sometimes? Worry. And then we make excuses for it or rationalize it. Well, I'm Irish. We always worry. Or we make it, it's a genetic thing. My mom was always a worrywart. I have to carry the torch to the next generation. It's like, well, if I don't worry, you make it like self-productive. If I don't worry, nothing will ever get done. Yeah, whatever. You don't have to. I didn't say Jesus did. Isn't that one of the most freeing verses in the scripture? Outside of salvation, eternal security and stuff. And forgiveness of sin. Isn't this awesome? And, and then he goes on to say, he says, hey, listen, don't worry. And he breaks it down about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, about your body, what you're going to wear. And he gives you a couple analogies uh, about the birds. You don't see the birds freaking out in the morning we talked about. You don't see the flowers freaking out and, and, and wigging out. And, and, and yet, aren't you much more valuable than they? He says, you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Now, flip over to uh, Philippians chapter 4. And verse 4. Remember we saw it in the context? Paul's writing this where? At the Holiday Inn. They had great accommodations back then. Or actually, uh, I'm sorry, that's a Roman Holiday Inn. So, no, that's an old movie, isn't it? Anyway, that's, uh, but anyway, that's uh, uh, Holiday Inn. You're there. Uh, no, he was in prison. And here's what he says, verse 4, chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious. Okay, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, all you got to do is present your request to God. 
And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, sometimes it doesn't make sense, but he gives it to you, okay? Even though people might look at you and say, you're crazy, you're nuts, how could you be at peace? Don't you realize what's going on? God doesn't always make sense, but he's always right. And he always knows what he's doing, okay? And he says, uh, with your understanding there, we'll guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I brought all that up there because what happens when you start doing your research, do your homework, and do these neat studies, merimonao, as we've seen many times before, it means to be consumed with self. And it's the exact same two words there in the Greek. Matthew 6 and worry is merimonao. Philippians chapter 4 is merimonao. Don't be anxious. Don't be consumed with yourself about anything. Don't be consumed about your life, what you're going to be eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Okay, you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You just present your request to God and enjoy his peace. What a deal. And yet we get all worked up. And when does worry and when does anxiety always continue? When does it start? How is it maintained in a positive fashion? As if we'd want to do that, but we do. It's when we continue to be consumed with self instead of our savior. And if you can't make that preaching, you ain't got no preaching there. Okay, and, and that's what he says. But where, where'd you get all that? You did some research. You, 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 you stopped. When the Spirit of God prompted you and focused on that verb or that noun, and you, you just for a fleeting moment, the thought went to your head, I wonder what that means. I, maybe I should go look that up in Strong's. Maybe I should hop online and, and dig into that. Maybe I should, wow, what a powerful word that is. The joy of the Lord is my strength. We sing songs about it. We, we do all kinds of, we, we say that to each other. It's a great Christianese phrase, but I have no idea how that works. So I'll just turn the page, work on the next, uh, next verse, chapter. No, stop. Maybe God wants you to do some homework. Did you realize that maybe some of your Biblical devotion time might actually be in some Bible resources. <laughs> so you can, you see what I'm saying? Oh, man, I, I, how many times have I shared the Merimonotal thing with you guys? That was just one time from one prompting from God. It's radically helped me. It's radically, I've used it many times in teaching from the pulpit and studies, personal counseling, all kinds of stuff. That's just one time. How many blessings are we missing out from God because we're in such a stinking hurry? That when he prompts us to stop, go look it up at what it says over here. Go do this over here. Go dig into that word. Get into the original language. Get the tools. Ask somebody. Do something. But dive into this one. I got something for you. But we just, we just keep moving. We miss it. Bible interpretation. Just slow down. Deal with it. Enjoy it. I would rather, we've talked about this before, I would rather get no further than one verse and yet learn something from God, be impacted by his spirit, than read the whole scripture. What did you accomplish if you got nothing out of it? Okay? You got to get in there. You have, and I've said this before. I think sometimes we set ourselves up for failure because what we do is we get all convicted, especially after Wednesday night Bible studies when we're supposed to do all this stuff and we're not doing this stuff. So I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and I'm going I'm I'm to go to sleep at midnight. I'm going to get up at 2.30 in the morning and I'm going to read 9,000 verses of the Bible. I'm going to, on my way, stop off at Walmart and buy every Strong's Concordance. And I'm not going to only study them. I'm going to give them out to everybody in the church. And then I'm going to go f- rob Pastor Billy's office and steal some of his. <laughs> and then I'm going, to, I'm going to get up that next day. And I, I, You set these unrealistic goals. And you're, you're dead. It's great. Hey, praise God. At least you want to get up early. But you, 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 don't, you're not, you don't pick a time when you're refreshed or you're not disciplined with your time. And so you've got great intentions, but you don't do it right. 
And so you, you get up at 2.30 in the morning, your eyes are all bugged out, you can't even see, it's all blurry and you're acting all spiritual and you're getting nothing out of it. You know what, sometimes maybe you should do it at night. Me, I'm a morning person. Anybody a morning person here? Anybody ever, yeah. Who, who's a morning person who married a non-morning person? Isn't it funny how that always works out? I love the morning time. Isn't it great, Ron? It's, I, I do like, I call it the happy elf dance. Everything's great. It's a brand new day. Who knows what's going to happen? Who are you going to meet? Who are you going to talk to? What God's going to do? What are you going to learn? Woo! Right? <laughs> and then with the brandy, you just let her sleep, you know, and try to sneak out, be quiet, you know, maybe throw a piece of steak on the bed for her later and close the door and, you know, and let her get up and get some strength going. <laughs> Yes, if she ever saw this video, I'd be crying. But anyway, that's right, we'll move on. Uh, let's continue on. Uh, that's what we need to do when we approach the scripture, okay? And, uh, but maybe it's a morning time, maybe it's evening time, but just pick a time. But when you pick a time, make sure you're refreshed, okay? And because, here's my point, and that you give yourself sufficient time if the Spirit of God, okay, prompts you, you'll take the time to do it. Because 99% of the time you say, oh, I'll do it later, guess what? You already forgot, and you never do it. And that was just one prompting that radically changed me. And I've got to use over and over again. Okay, just take your time to do it. But do it correctly, okay? Uh, This will allow you to get some understanding of a more expanded definition of the word from the original languages. Now, let me give you a little bit of a breakdown, okay? You can use, uh, in your studying, you can use the Strong's, okay, as you talked before. That will give you a word or two, maybe a sentence uh, of a definition, all right? Now, if you want to go to a little bit deeper, you go to what's called a lexicon, okay? A Greek or Hebrew lexicon. That will give you a sentence or two, okay, typically in a Greek or Hebrew lexicon. Then you will go down to stage three of Vine's expository that he talked about. Because at that point, then you're probably going to get uh, something akin to a paragraph or two, okay, depending on the word. So you're getting a little bit more, okay? And then if you want to go to the ultimate, okay, is what's called the Kittles, Okay, the Kittle's uh, New Testament Dictionary. Uh, and I believe he has one for the Old Testament. And that's where you literally will get pages, okay? You can get one word and you got 31 pages discussing that word. Not only with the, uh, if it's the New Testament, the, the uh, original Koine Greek usage goes backwards into the classical Greek usage, goes into the early church usage of the word. I mean, you can, how deep do you want to go? And this is all stuff that's available at our fingertips, guys. And so, but pick your, pick your thing there. And again, you start to look at the tools that we have at our fingertips that the church has never had ever, 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 ever. We should be walking encyclopedias of the scripture. We should be the most disciplined disciples ever. Okay, and I don't mean just sticking it up here in your head. I mean, of course, the whole point is to apply it. We should be oozing with all kinds of these nuggets and things that has radically changed us and we're sharing with each other if we would just get in there and do it. The words that you uh, research at the bottom page there should be those words that appear to be keys in understanding the passage. Now again, if I'm doing a study on joy, I'm gonna be looking at the words on joy. And then when I come across a passage with the antithesis that repeatedly, like in Matthew 6, says, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. Uh, what's probably one of the key words there to focus on and look up and research? Rhymes with worry, you guys are on the ball. Don't worry about it. Okay, and uh, so he's going to give us another example. Okay, that's another key phrase. If you want to get more out of the passage, if something is repeated, a general uh, interpretation rule is it's there for emphasis. Now here's, listen to this example in 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the 
world, uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. See, I told you I get it with the man trucker thing. Uh, is not from the Father. Okay, it's from the world. Okay, now the word world is significant. How many guys can figure that out without any help tonight? Praise God, right? And how did we deduce that? Because I took 14 uh, classes at seminary. I spent $95,000 so I can... No, that's common sense, right? Uh, I mean, my goodness, it's what? Two verses, six times repeats that word. I'm thinking, hmm, there's something there for me. Okay, and that's what he says. Stop. What is that? You want to get the most out of it, right? Why move on? Just impress John, as cool as that is. Okay, Uh, therefore, we should study the word to determine how John is defining world, right? Because that's another one. World, what's he talking about? World, right? You would go back to this analogy with cool, 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 world, world, world. Which meaning is it? You want to get it right, especially in this one. Okay, it's repeated six times. And that's what he says there. Does it mean the whole created universe? No. Does it mean mankind? No. Does it mean a system of earthly and social structures or the beings in rebellion against God together with the systems under their control viewed as opposed to God? Yes. It's the Greek word cosmos. Okay, is what it is. Okay, for those of you down south, it's cosmos. Okay, but it's cosmos is what it is if you're hooked on correct Greek, as I know you guys all are. You guys ever use Greek uh, when you're in the drive through McDonald's? Hilarious. No, I haven't done it either, but uh, you can try it. But uh, now you're starting to wake up. Anyway, so uh, cosmos, that's what it means. It literally means, listen, the whole wicked world system that seduces us away from God and is antithetical to the things of God, right? So if you were to look at that and just quickly go over that, the whole world, God hates planet Earth. He's not an environmentalist after all. Wrong. Okay. God can't, he says, don't love mankind. We can't love other people. It says it right there. Don't love the world. He's talking about humans. Now, is it possible for somebody to do that? Yes, but that would be wrong. And that's just two verses. That's how easy it can happen. You don't stop, pause, consider, take a look, use some common sense. What's he talking about here? Now, actually, he doesn't mention this, but there's another important word that he uses there. And it's the the Greek word there, love. Okay? Well, what's he talking about? Because there's four different Greek words uh, for the same one uh, with love. There's agapao, okay, in, in the, the Greek there. Uh, there's eros, okay, there's uh, stergo, okay, and there's phileo, okay. Phileo is where we get, uh, it's like a brotherly love, like philos adlophos, Philadelphia, brotherly love is what that's speaking of. Stergo is kind of like a familiar love. It's like, hey, man, I really, I really love cows, you know, I love my job. I love that car. We don't really, hopefully, anyway, take them out on a date or something. But, uh, but that's kind of what that means. Uh, eros is where we get our English word erotic. And that's exactly the problem with our world, isn't it? They think that love is some sort of a feeling uh, or some sort of a sexual connotation. No, 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 no. Okay? What he's talking about here is agapao. This is the exact same word. This is when you talk about a cool study. This is the exact same word in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Is it just a casual love? Or it's like, yeah, I love that car. Yeah, I love the world. <laughs> yeah. No. It, it, that love, agapao, means, listen, a, it's a self-sacrificial love. It goes a little bit more than that. Not just self, purely for the benefit of another person, which means it really is for them. It's not about you to toot your own horn. 
It's a self-sacrificial love purely for the benefit of another person. I just you what it means. Now, so, so that's the word that he's using here, do not love the world. Wait a second, so what's he saying? We'll supplant it with the actual meaning of agapao. He isn't just saying, you know, don't be, you know, a friend with the world or kind of like, okay, you know, I kind of love the world. No. He uses an extremely strong word. He chose the strongest word there in the Greek, agapao. And so what I get out of that is, it's pretty clear. Uh, do not sacrifice yourself, your life, your time, who you are, your service to this world. The planet? Mankind? No. Do not self-sacrifice your existence here on earth to the whole wicked world system that seduces us away from God and is antithetical to the things of God. Don't do that. Why? Because then the love, agapao, of the Father is not in you. Ooh. That's a whole lot there. In the two. Did, did you see how that just two verses just exploded? We did the homework together tonight. But how many times do we read the Bible again and we just don't take the time? Uh, to take a look at what's going on there. And that's what he says we need to do. After a bit of research, you should be able to come to a conclusion. Now, observing the context, is your next blank there, observing the context of the surrounding verses, the chapter, the book, and the Bible as a whole. What did the writer discuss before this passage, and what does he discuss after it? Let me give you one example, and then we're going to close for tonight about the importance of context, context, context. Okay, Romans chapter 12, we talked about this before, but I want to quickly take you through it so you can see the context for yourself. And the amazing statement there. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Many times we've been here. Uh, Paul's talked about this, about being living sacrifices. Now, you could have stopped right there the, the morning before. Okay, I finished uh, uh, the first 11 chapters of Romans. I've almost come close to beating John. Tomorrow, I'm picking up on chapter 12. And then something happens, so you didn't get it to that day. And there's a week later, and you've already forgot what you read. And here you are. You're doing the right thing. You pop in at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore... I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, logical, is the Greek word there, act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Okay, whoa. Okay, so that's, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. That's cool. I've heard that many a times. You just broke a biblical rule. Okay? Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is it therefore? Okay, now before you start, even if it's been a couple days, and even if you read the 11 chapters last week, Okay, you need to stop, back up, grab the context before you engage again. And this is what I told you before about the importance, if you can get your hands on the copy of the scripture that doesn't have all these chapter divisions, your brain doesn't chunk them up and you read them the way they're supposed to be in a free-flowing letter because that's what they were. All right, so let's, let's do a little homework before we go back to therefore. Romans chapter one, if you want to flip over there very quickly, Paul is talking about the wrath of God being revealed against mankind because we've all blown it. Because we had the audacity to worship created things instead of the creator. We suppress the truth about God's existence and he gives us over. He gives us over to lust and then a, a, a homosexuality and a depraved mind. And that's America going right down the tubes if you ever want to see what's happened to our country. Romans chapter one. He says, oh, and then chapter two, he says, oh, you, the Jewish people, you who got the law, you think, well, we're not like those Gentiles. <laughs> you know, they, they say you don't exist. We don't do that. He says, listen, you guys who even though you got to copy the law, you don't obey it and God's name's being blasphemed because of you. And that's why he says in Romans chapter three over here, he says, therefore, here's my whole point. Doesn't matter Jew or Gentile, nobody's righteous. No, not one. He says that in uh, chapter uh, three, verse uh, uh, 10, he says, there's no one righteous. No, not one. There's no one who understands. Nobody seeks God. Everybody's turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are an open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers on their lips 
Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, the way of peace. They do not know. Why? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, Paul, that's not a very fluffy message. You just damaged my self-esteem. Precisely. He's trying to do that. Okay, to let us know we are all doomed, headed straight to hell. What does he say? The wages of sin, later, 323, is death. We deserve to die and go to hell. Okay? He says, so, so now he's le- leveled the playing field. We're all doomed going straight to hell. He says, now here's the good news, chapter 4. You can be justified by faith. Abraham is our example. He said, here's the good news, chapter 5. He says, listen, you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. As wild as it seems, just as maybe you made the charge uh, of the first Adam. Well, that ain't fair because Adam sinned. I wasn't there. That all of us are born with a sin nature. That ain't right. Flip it around. The second Adam, he says, can you believe this? The one who never sinned, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, he took on the sins of the whole world and you go scot-free. Whoa. And then he says, chapter six, he says, that's why everyday Christian, what a privilege. You're, you're saved, you're justified by faith. The second Adam has set you free from the penalty of sin. Therefore, when you get up every single day, he says, you have a choice to make. Are you gonna be an instrument of wickedness or an instrument of righteousness? Yes, God, that's what I wanna do. Instrument of righteousness. He says, Paul, chapter seven, but listen, it's gonna be a struggle. The things you wanna do, you're not gonna do. He says, oh, it's just what rich man, who can I? He says, praise be to God, chapter eight. He says that, that all these things can be done through the spirit of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. He says, but if you do, he says, nothing is gonna separate you uh, from the love of God. He says, it doesn't matter what, what's going on. And all these things were more than conquerors. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Woo, nothing. Even though we all deserve to go straight into hell, nothing through Jesus Christ can separate us from the love of God. We are going to get to heaven. And then he says in chapters 9, 10, 11, he starts talking about, hey, now listen, you, you of the church age, okay, uh, uh, before you get a big fat head and say, well, those Jewish people, they missed the boat. He says, listen, I'm not done with them. They're under a temporary blindness and you should praise God that they're under temporary blindness because that's allowed you to be grafted into God's wonderful grace, okay? And he says, but don't forget, I'm not done with them. Uh, in the last days, they're gonna come, three and a half years in the seven-year tribulation, they're gonna, their eyes are gonna be open, they're gonna see him in whom they pierce and they're gonna mourn, okay? And then two-thirds of the Jewish people are gonna die, one-third's gonna be a remnant. He's not done with them and then that's when he comes across this statement, therefore... I urge you, in, in, in view of God's mercy, man, offer your bodies then as a living sacrifice. Okay, holy and pleasing to God. And I, I brought this out before, but now since we did the context, this is your spiritual, it's logikos in the Greek, which I believe is where we get the word logical. This is your logical act of worship, right? After all God has done, we're all doomed, deserve to go to hell. He saved us. Nobody can take that away from us. What's the logical response? Your life here on earth is now devoted for Jesus Christ. You're not going to agapo, self-sacrifice yourself for this wicked world system that's antithetical to God and seduces us away from God 24-7. Uh-uh. You're going to offer your body as a living sacrifice to him. God, use me. Here I am. Use me for your purposes with what time is left. And don't be conformed. To this world okay as we saw before metamorph- uh, uh, in the greek metamorphosis okay like a butterfly coming out of a cocoon okay he says you're like a, a piece of clay okay and something's going to mold you right now you and i are being molded what are we being molded into just don't let it be the world whatever you do don't have your head in the shape of planet earth no that's not what world means as we saw right it means this wicked world system don't come out looking like this wicked world system 
Let God mold you. Let him renew you. How? By his good and perfect pleasing will. You put, it's right here in the Bible. You renew your mind with that. And that's what we do. All because you took the time when you hit Romans chapter 12, you came across one word that a basic Bible interpretation rule says, stop, go back, see what it's there for. I don't care if you even read it just yesterday, but before you engage again, get the context and you get a whole lot more out of it. Amen? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple of things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying, okay? How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand, okay? Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I'm a thief, I'm a blasphemer, I'm an adulterer, I'm a murderer. And the scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step, to admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. 
That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us his son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, For instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, Uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know, it's actually on historical record, that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive his pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what he was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the grave. And the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.